I don't know about you, but I think we should wear royal stuff like every Sunday, you know? Like anything that I can do to dress a little more casual for church just makes me feel better. I think we need a hoodie day one day in the future. I think we need like a pajama day one day in the future and like a shorts and flip-flops day. I think we would all love Jesus in church more if we did that from time to time. We're in the midst of a series that we're calling The Veil. If you see the front of your bulletin, or if you saw maybe the sign when you came in, we're looking at the events leading up to Easter Sunday, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and eventually the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just to retell the Easter story, but specifically so that we might learn what spiritual impact that they can have in our life and what it's meant to do for us spiritually and to us spiritually. So we've been in Matthew 27 the last three weeks. I don't know if I've had our ushers go down the aisle yet. If not, ushers, um, if you'll just run down the aisle real quick. If you don't have a Bible today um, and you'd like to read along with us, we're going to read a a little bit of Scripture today, Matthew 27. Just wave at our ushers. They'll give you a Bible that you can use today. If you don't have one, put your name in it and keep it. We've given away more than 600 just like this. We'd love for you to have one to take home with you to maybe read all about Jesus' life. You can do that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we're centered on the crucifixion of Jesus, the tearing of the veil after the crucifixion, and what that means for you and I spiritually in our relationship to Jesus and in our access and availability to God. And I'll begin today by asking this question, because this is kind of the end point of the message today. Do you this morning, do you feel close to God? I mean, if you just think about your life right now, or maybe I should put it this way, on a scale of 1 to 10, if 10 were the closest in your life you ever felt to God, if 10 were the most on fire you've ever been spiritually, where would you say you are today on that scale of 1 to 10? How are you doing spiritually? Because this series is all about how to do a little better spiritually and how to be a little closer to God spiritually and how to be a little more on fire from God spiritually. That's why we're doing this six-week series so we can figure out how to get closer to God. And we learn that through the crucifixion. Here's, we start in Matthew 27, verse 33 today. Jesus is on the cross. It says, they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now, I want to stop right there. I told you a few weeks ago when we were in Israel, we went to this place in Israel where Jesus is crucified, and you can see why it's called the place of the skull. This is the hill where many scholars believe Jesus would have been crucified right on top of it. I took this picture on my phone. The the garden tomb was 50 yards behind me. Golgotha, the, the place of the skull, was about 50 yards in front of me. And if you ever go to Israel with us, which I hope one day all of you will in the next 25 years that maybe we do church together, Lord willing, um, you'll see that and you'll never read the Bible the same way after having been to the Holy Land and you read Place of the Skull and you think, oh, I get it it because it looks like a skull and many other things you would learn biblically. Verse 34, so they were there. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. They were trying to give him Tylenol. That was a a painkiller, basically. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. After si- and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of, the God, uh, the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we'll believe in him. 
He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I'm the son of God. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, ordered uh, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone and let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit at that moment. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tomb after Jesus' resurrection, and they went into the holy city, and they appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified, and they exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Now, our study this six weeks focuses on verses 50 and 51. So I want to go back there. These should by now be underlined or highlighted or circled or kind of tagged in your Bible so you know that they're important. But it is the moment of Jesus' death in the moment immediately following Jesus' death that points to the great significance of this moment. In verse 50, it said, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, if you have your pen, underline at that moment or circle it or star it. The very moment Jesus died, this is the very first thing that happened after Jesus died. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the New King James, which is a little more traditional reading of this in Matthew 27, 51, says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And I believe Matthew 27, 51 may be the most important piece of spiritual history in all of scripture. And I believe that Resurrection, Resurrection Sunday is huge for our eternal life. And I believe that everything Jesus did is important for our spiritual life. But for our access to God, it doesn't get any better than Matthew 27, 51, when the Bible says at the moment Jesus died, the barrier that God had put up between he and humanity was torn down by God, and God said, access to me is now open if you want it. The key to this whole series is this thought that we've been trying to boil down to a statement for two weeks. When Jesus died on the cross, he restored the ability for humanity to live without separation from God. And that's what this six weeks is about. How do we live a life closer to God, with more access to God? How do we have a good theological understanding that the way to God is clear and it's wide open, and if we will approach God the way that God says he wants to be approached, we can be closer to God than we ever imagined. You know, for 1,500 years, people, they did not, not only did they not feel close to God, they felt separated from God, and that was intentional because God had put a wall up and said, you cannot cross this wall. We see that wall in the Old Testament tabernacle and in the Old Testament temple. I want you to pull this out. I've given this out the last two weeks. If you don't have this, our ushers are going to go down the aisle. I encourage you to get one of these from them and throw it in your Bible. I believe you'll understand scripture history better with a knowledge of the tabernacle and temple than you ever would without it. So if you need one, just let the ushers know, but put it in your Bible so you can bring it back next week. Because when mankind separated themselves from God in the Garden of Eden, God responded by saying, hey, I still want to be close to you, but we're going to have to do this my way. In his way was the tabernacle, 
which Moses built in the desert and which Moses and the Israelites used for 40 years. And then the people of Israel would use for nearly 500 years. And this is simple as the temple became the permanent tabernacle. Now, I want to say this for all of you who fear that we're trying to follow the example of Moses and the people. Moses and the people of Israel basically did set up and tear down in their church for more than 500 years before Solomon built the temple. Um, I don't know that any of us will make it if it takes us 500 years to get a real building at this church and not have to set up and tear down every week. But the way we have started was the way that Moses and his guys started. As a matter of fact, they just had prettier pipe and drape, but that's all it was. Poles, stands, hooks, fabric. This is how they built the sanctuary where they worship God. And as we study the tabernacle and the temple, we see a lot of spiritual significance, five key areas of spiritual significance in understanding in the tabernacle and temple that teach us how to have a better relationship with Jesus. Last week, we looked at the basins and we taught about spiritual cleansing. This week, we're going to look at the lampstand. Next week, we'll look at the table of showbread. We'll take communion together as a church next Sunday. I have people all the time ask me, Christian, when do we take communion? We don't do it often because of how difficult it is to set it up and tear it down and get it ready. We will do that next week as a part of both our 915 and 1045 services. We'll learn about the altar of incense and talk about how God teaches us to pray, to communicate. Then on Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about that veil that gets torn down. But we're learning about all these things specifically so that we can find our way to God and understand, understand how to be closer to God in our future than we ever were in our past. In the tabernacle and in, and in the temple, God literally has map-quested. He's GPSed. He's Google-mapped. He, he has Siri'd, if you got the little lady on your phone that you ask for directions. God has given us point-by-point point turns and directions on how to have great access and intimacy with him. And if we can learn this from the temple, I believe our life can be transformed radically. Today, for me, has held some of the most transformational truth that I have ever read in Scripture in my 15 years of ministry as I have begun to understand the lampstand. And today, we, we, we study the lampstand because it's our goal to see clearly God's plan for our life. It's our goal today to really see clearly God's plan for our life. And I want to ask you a question right now. I'll repeat it from earlier. If you were to give the level of your spiritual fire that's burning right now, is it closer to 10 or is it closer to 1? Is the light on spiritually in your life right now? I've been watching the last few weeks the, the, uh, the murder trial uh, of a South African Olympic athlete by the name of Oscar Pistorius. Maybe some of you have followed his career or you know who he is. He's the first Paralympic athlete who ever made the Olympic Games, and he, he qualified for the, for the last Olympic Games in the 400-meter relay and in the, in the open 400, and he was kind of the, the, the hero of South Africa in those Olympics. And last Valentine's Day, he, he killed his girlfriend. He's admittedly um, killed his girlfriend because he says... Um, he woke up in the middle of the night. He didn't have his prosthetic legs on. He heard someone. He thought it was a stranger. He pulled his gun out um, and literally thought they, thought they had locked themselves in the bathroom. He just started firing, and he killed her. Um, the prosecution is saying that he knew it was his girlfriend all along. They were in a fight. She went in there to hide, um, and he shot her through the door. And the entire prosecution, because I've been following this case every day because it's intriguing to me. The entire prosecution rests on this one point. Was the light on? If the light was on, then he, he knew his girlfriend wasn't still in bed and they're, they're going to charge him guilty. 
If they can prove that the light was off, perhaps he didn't know what was going on. I believe today's message boils down to one point spiritually. Is Is the light on spiritually for you today? Is your light on spiritually, and can you really see and understand what's going on in your life spiritually and where you are? Today, I want to teach you some spiritual lessons about this lampstand, and more importantly, how these lessons can help close the gap on the separation that we might feel from God today. Here's the first thing we learn. When we look at Scripture, God's light in life has always been a game changer. And that's what I was looking for in this week's messages. Show me some game changers. God, show me the big things about light that I need to know. And God said, Christian, when, when, I, when I bring light into things, it's always a game changer. Starting in Genesis 1-3, when God said, let there be light, and there was light. This was, according to Scripture, how God began to create the universe. One thing that's cool about this is in the last 10 days, scientists believe they have discovered basically the initial phases of the Big Bang in the universe. And for years, scientists have been trying to figure out whether the universe slowly evolved or whether there was a a start, a point in time when the universe was nothing and then, bam, it just exploded. And just in the last two weeks, scientists with all their science and all their satellites and all their data have said, you know, we think we found the very beginning of the universe in space, which means there was a time when nothing existed And then in moments, the entire universe was created. The thing I love about that is that's what the Bible says. And the more I learn about science, the less I believe it contradicts Scripture, and the more I believe it lays alongside with Scripture. God says, boom, I started the universe in an instant. Science is now saying, that's kind of what looks like it it probably happened. In Isaiah 9-2, Isaiah spoke of not just physical darkness, but spiritual darkness. And Isaiah said, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, light has dawned. Jesus himself said in John 8, 12, when he spoke to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. See, when God's light comes on, it changes everything. But as we look through scripture, we see not only did God create light, not only did Isaiah promise light, not only did Jesus say, I was the light, but there was a moment in time when a distinction of light and darkness began to draw people to God. When God's light showed a special relationship to a specific group of people in Exodus chapter 10, it became important in both an exclusive and an attractive way. You say, what do you mean by that? God showed by his light in Exodus chapter 10 that there are some people who are very close to him and some who are very far from him. But he did it in an attractive way, not that the people would feel judged, but that they would feel attracted to want to be in God's light. In Exodus chapter 10, speaking of the 10 plagues, here's what Moses writes. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Now listen, you and I have both had times in our life where we have felt like we were living in darkness, I mean, that, that literally wrapped around. It was darkness that could be felt. Not discouragement, not just depression, but I mean, just like can't get out of bed, get off the couch, make a phone call, love the kids, mow the yard, just darkness. And God says, in that darkness... I will always provide a place or a person of light that shows you that things can be different. 
And maybe today you walked in today and, and you're kind of, you're existing in darkness today. You're not sure what your future holds. You're not sure if your marriage is going to make it. You're not sure if your finances are going to make it. You're not sure if your kids are, are going to make it. You're not sure if you're going to make it. Like you, you're just existing in kind of a fog. And you just wish that God would turn the light on and just shed a little light on, on something that you need to know. Maybe today God has brought you here to show you how to flip the light switch on or to change the light bulb that's burnt out a little bit. Maybe God's trying to give you direction today. Because God has always used light to get our attention. But when he used it in the tabernacle and when he used it in the temple, here's what happened. Number two, when we begin to understand God's light in relation to our approach to him, that also was a game changer spiritually. Like when God said, let there be light, bang, everything changed. But when God said, here's where I am and here's where you are, and on the way from where you are to where I am, the only way you're going to be able to see anything is by this little light that I provide. That light became a game changer because it directed us towards something that we desire. We know light directs us spiritually. The question is, how exactly does this happen? I love Psalm 119, 105. The psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and it's a light unto my path. People go to church, read the Bible, do the whole kind of spiritual thing because they're hoping for some kind of direction in life. But exactly how is that supposed to work? God shows us through the tabernacle and through the temple. Because if you look at the little cutout that I gave you, and by the way, these, these cutouts of the tabernacle, the tabernacle was not open, it was covered. That piece has been removed so we can see it. The temple has, was covered, it's been removed so we could see it. If you look at the ground along the tabernacle and the temple, you're not going to see any electrical cords running inside. You're not going to see any power lines running overhead. Literally, the only light that God gave his people in the Old Testament in their access to him was the lampstand. So once you walked inside to try to get close to the access of God, the only way you could see anything was by following God's light, God's way. And when we look at the lampstand, man, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing in Scripture. I think we got a picture of it behind me. So how do you know that it looks like that? Because the Bible tells us very clearly. Those of you... Um, maybe from a Jewish culture, or those of you with Jewish friends recognize that as a menorah, which is exactly what it is. But in Exodus chapter 25, if you have your Bible, you can turn over there. God tells Moses how to build this in exactly what it's supposed to look like and exactly how it is supposed to function. And I want to be honest with you, I have, um, this week has been a game changer for me spiritually because I've had a question answered that I've always had spiritually this week um, that I never really understood until I put together this message, and it was like the light came on for me, no pun intended. In Exodus 25, here's how God told Moses to make the lampstand. Make the lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make its flower-like cups and buds and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side, three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand, there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, a second bud under the second pair, a third under the third, six branches in all. The buds and branches shall all be of one piece with the lampstand hammered out of pure gold. Then make it seven lamps 
and set them on it so that they light the space in front of it. Its wick trimmers and trays are to be of pure gold. A talent of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all these accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern shown to you on the mount. So here's what we know from those 10 verses. First, the lampstand was made out of a talent of gold, which means it was made out of 75 pounds of gold. As a pretty important piece of this portable church that they were carrying around in the back of the trailer. 75 pounds of pure gold made this thing. It's the next two points of this that have really opened my eyes spiritually this week. The lampstand consisted of lamps, not candles. And there's a big difference between the two, and you would think because it was called a lampstand that that might be kind of common sense. But I want you to, un- to circle this word in verse 37, Exodus 25, 37. Make it seven lamps. And we're going to find out that these lamps ran on oil, not wax. And let me tell you the question that I've always struggled with as a pastor. Because the first eight years that I was in ministry, I was a youth pastor. And I would take students to camp, and I would see them catch fire spiritually. And then the fire would burn out. And I'd take students on mission trips, and I would see them catch fire spiritually, and the fire would burn out. And then as a pastor, I would see people come to church as we started a church, and they would become a Christian, and they would get baptized, and they would be on fire, and then the fire would burn out. And I, and I was always a little frustrated with God that the fire would go out. And I thought, God, why, why, is, why would you send a spirit of such excitement if it couldn't be maintained, if it couldn't be sustained? And I was, I was kind of upset by that. You know, why, why would God light our candle only to have it burn out? And as I studied the lampstand, and I realized it was not a candle but a lamp, and I realized it was not made of wax but made of oil, here's what I realized as I began to study how this lampstand in the tabernacle in the temple worked. The lampstand was created so that it had the ability to never go out. But it took significant attention from humanity to stay burning. And when I learned that this week, it was like God answered my question. God, why did you let the fire go out? God, why do you let the fire go out? God, why do you let the fire go out? And God said, Christian, time out. I've never let the fire go out. You have. As a matter of fact, the way that I have created people to interact spiritually with me, I have created tools for them that allow their fire to never go out if they will pay attention to them and use them properly. So let me ask you a question. Has your fire gone out today? I asked some of you to put a number on the, on the top of your sermon notes. If, if, if like 10 was the great, if the greatest spiritual moment, the greatest spiritual revival of your life, if you would say that's a level 10, and today you say I'm a level, a level 7 or I'm a level 4, or I'm a level 3, I'm a level... What happened? How did it happen? How do we go from being totally on fire spiritually to just to having no light at all? How exactly does that happen? Because this is, this is the point of this message. How do, we, how do we keep the fire burning once it finally gets started? Because the lampstand teaches us how to do that. And I think part of the problem has been the church's teaching. In that the church has said, you're supposed to let your light shine, but we don't always talk to people about how to make sure the light burns. 
Probably today in some preschool or nursery in some church in the world, they're teaching kids to sing this little light of mine. You remember when we had to, I mean, it's kind of scary when you think about it. We would light our fingers on fire. Did anyone else light their finger on fire when they were little? You know, and sing this little light of mine. I'm going to make it shine. Um, You know, and we would say, hide it under a bushel. And what would we say? No, no, we can't hide our light under a bushel. We got to let our light shine. Don't let Satan you remember to blow it in? No, no, saying it. I got it. So we like even our little kids know that they're supposed to let their light shine. But what's crazy is is we've been told our light's supposed to shine, but we've not been told how to keep it burning. And I don't think most of us have a problem with a desire to be on fire spiritually. We have a problem with trying to figure out how we get on fire and stay on fire spiritually. And if we study the tabernacle and if we study the temple. And if we study how God taught us to interact spiritually with him, and if we study the lampstand, we're going to learn how to stay on fire. We're going to learn how to stay um, lit or lighted spiritually. And here's what I learned as I study the tabernacle and the lampstand. It was the role of the high priest to attend to God's light in his worship of God twice every day. According to Exodus chapter 30, verses 7 and 8, God said, Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. If this verse is on your sermon notes, you need to underline this on your sermon notes. When he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when he lights the lamps at twilight, so incense will burn regularly before the Lord for generations to come. Now, Exodus 37 through 8 has nothing to do with the lampstand. It actually has to do with the altar of incense that I'll teach about in two weeks. But God said, let me find the most consistent thing that the priest will do and let me match another duty with it. And God says, oh, I know. Aaron, there'll never be a day in Aaron's life where he doesn't wake up and make sure his light's burning spiritually. And there'll never be a night in Aaron's life where he goes to bed before stopping to make sure that the light is burning spiritually. So I'll take those two things that Aaron will always do for the rest of his life And I'll put important tasks around them because I know Aaron will never not keep the lamps burning. And we find as we look in Scripture that it was the role of the high priest to do two things. One, he had to trim the wicks so that the light would burn brightly. Because if the light was attached to a wick that was old and crusty, it would not burn very brightly. And they needed it to give light in the room because there was no light. It was also the priest's job to fill the lamps so that the light could burn continually. Now, one cool thing about this second point of Aaron every day filling the lamps with oil is how he got that oil. In Leviticus chapter 24, 2, the Israelites were commanded as one of their offerings to bring oil. Command the Israelites to bring clear oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps could be kept burning continually. God teaches us in Leviticus chapter 24, and I think sometimes we forget this, that the intentions of offerings are to keep God's light burning in the world. You know, sometimes we throw five bucks or ten bucks in the plate. Sometimes we tithe. We give 10% of what God's given us in the plate. And we think of it as money or we think of it as offering. But we, we don't consider that the purpose of offering is to keep God's light burning in the world. And this week we had a conference call on Thursday with the company that we're working with to, um, you know, we've, we've hired an architect and an engineer and uh, we're working with a lender now. We are preparing to to build our building on the land that we purchased in December. And we were talking with the person who's going to help us do the fundraising and the financing piece of that. And they were looking at the financial numbers of our church. 
And the guy just made a statement. He said, I am blown away by the generosity of your people. He said, do you realize for a church that's only two years, for a church as small as yours, like, man, you must have some of the most generous people on planet Earth. And I said, well, we keep the mission of ministry in front of them. And I think most, most of them aren't giving to our church. They're giving to keep the ministry light burning in our community, in our city, and around the world. And we need to remember every time we give, we're giving to keep the light on spiritually for someone. And when you think about the spiritual impact of our church, you know, spiritual impact can be seen in our church in decisions and dollars. Since we started our church on September 18th, 2011, 447 people have made spiritual decisions. 447 people have had the light come on, the wick trimmed, a little oil put in, some of them for the first time ever, sometimes some of them have been reminded of what they need to do. And more than that, since our church began September 18th, 2011, our church has given away more than $200,000 to mission work to see lights kept burning in India and in Africa and in Thailand, and in Guatemala, and in Israel, and here locally with hungry kids, and in downtown Kansas City at the homeless shelter. See, when we give, we keep the light burning, but how sad it is that so many of us come in, and we give, and we, we, we light someone else's lamp, but we go away, and our light is out, and our fire is gone, and it's just become routine. How do we keep our light burning and not just exist for the lamps of other people? Spiritual application of the high priest is pretty easy for me to see. If we want to see God clearly as we approach full access that we have to him behind the veil, we have to do two things. One, we have to keep trimming the things in our life that stand in the way of us of following God with great commitment. The priest had to trim the wick, not so that the light would burn out, so, but so that it would burn very bright. And some of you need to trim some things out of your life because your light is beginning to go down a little bit. The fire is beginning to go out a little bit. Why? Just because of stuff in our life. From people to hobbies to activities to habits to addictions to just being really busy to just being really lazy. There are a plethora of reasons of why we're not burning as brightly spiritually today as we used to be. We have to figure out what those things are and we've got to get rid of them. And then number two, we have to keep filling our lives with things that help us see, more God, see God more clearly. We have to continue to fill the lamp. We have to be around things that are going to stoke the fire, not put the fire out. We have to be around people who will help stoke the fire, not put the fire out. I remember I had a mentor in ministry one time say, Christian, in your church, you're going to have two types of people. People who carry around buckets of, vas- of, of gasoline and people who carry around buckets of water. And he said, when your fire is burning spiritually, he said, stay around the people who have buckets of gasoline. Because when you get around them and they douse you with who they are, your fire is going to burn brighter. And stay away from the people who, when your fire is burning, they just want to douse you with their bucket of water. You need to find things and people that keep things burning spiritually. And the truth is, as we look through Scripture, without our attention to God's light in our daily spiritual journey, some of us are trying to approach God, but we're approaching God blindly. And we don't see it very well. And Jesus even spoke specifically to this. People who, they have a desire to be close to God. They realize they have access to God. At one time, they were close to God. But now they are in a dark room, and their spiritual journey, and their connection to God, everything feels dark, everything feels distant. 
And we say, why, God, does this happen? And God's saying, just turn the light back on. I've already told you how to do these things. And this is the third kind of game-changing thought that occurred to me this week as I studied through this text about making sure we keep our light on spiritually. Number three, when we understand that we have now become God's light, this becomes a game-changer in our life about not allowing us to live as burnt-out Christians. In John 8, 12, and let me show you the baton that has been passed to us. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. In Matthew 5, 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Here's, here's the past that has gone on there. Jesus says, I have come so that for three years, my ministry, my life, my lifestyle, being around me, my presence, for three years, I will make sure people know how to have access to God. And if they get around me, they're going to know how to have access to God. But after three years, tag your it. Now for the rest of time, when people need to know what access to God looks like, they're gonna, you're going to have to do it. And when they want to know how to find a pathway to God, you're going to have to do it. So Jesus says, I was the light of the world, but now you're the light of the world. And guess what? When people who claim to have the light of the world in them, but they have no fire in them spiritually, people who claim to follow Jesus yet are following blindly because the light is off, these people are dangerous spiritual examples. Jesus actually referred to them as blind guides. In Matthew 15, 14, he says, leave these type of people. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So we've got parents telling kids that they love Jesus, but they have no spiritual fire in their life. And their kids are saying, okay, so this is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is how often I read my Bible. This is how often I go to church. These are the actions and reactions I have. These are the attitudes that I'm allowed to have. Mom and dad are Christians. This is what it means. They have the light. I have the light. And we're the blind leading the blind. This is what it looks like for husbands and wives who are waiting for their husband or their wife, their spouse, to come along spiritually. Their spouse is looking at them saying, if, you're, if you have the light of God in you, that light doesn't appear very bright. I'm not really attracted to that. I think about teachers and coaches who carry kind of the, the mantle of Christian in their life, but then they act crazy and they treat people poorly and they don't have sensitivity. Jesus said, when, when people who are supposed to have the light in them live totally burnout spiritually, that's going to make a very bad combination of trying to reach the world. They're both going to fall off a cliff spiritually. Jesus isn't looking for blind guides. He's looking for spotlights. Jesus is looking for people that he can draw attention to so that they'll see who the true God is that they can have access to. That's why I tell people, God didn't, God didn't draw Moses to just a bush. He drew Moses to a bush that was on fire. Moses wouldn't have, wouldn't have noticed a normal bush in the desert. There were hundreds of normal bushes in the desert. It was the one that stood out that was different that got his attention. And God has people in this community who are looking around at hundreds of normal Christians trying to find one that stands out because of their connection to God so they can find out what it is. God's looking for some Christians that are on fire and that have stayed on fire and that have kept their light lit. Why? So that he can draw people to them so he can draw people to himself. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the entire earth to strengthen those, not who are weak, but those whose hearts are committed to him. God says, I'm looking for the strongest Christians. I'm looking for the Christians who tend to the light every day, who refuse to let the light go out, and I'm gonna pour more oil into their life, and I'm gonna keep their wick trimmed so that they burn brightly so that when others see them, they're drawn to me. So the question we have to ask then is, how do I keep God's lamp burning in my life? 
Because what happens is a lot of us read through the Bible and we say, man, if I could be as close to God as Moses was to God, you know, I'd be a different person spiritually. Well, Moses had 60 specific times a month, he and his brother Aaron, that he met with God. How many do you have? Because a lot of us say, man, if I could be as close to God as Moses was to God, that would transform my life. But I really only have kind of two Sundays a month to do that. So how does that work? It doesn't. You know, if I could experience God like Moses experienced God, I would do that. But like, you know, I've only got like an hour a week. It's probably not going to happen. We see that it was Moses and Aaron's level of commitment that allowed their light to burn so brightly. So how do I keep God's lamp burning in my life? It's pretty simple. It's like Christianity 101. Number one, you have to have daily time with God. You have to have daily time with God. You, you have to find time to fit God in. And I don't know that you have to do it every morning and every evening. I just know that's what Aaron did. I don't do that. I don't read my Bible twice a day. I do try to have my prayer time in the morning. I try to read my Bible at night. I do that more often than I don't. But I know if you want to keep God close to you, you have to stay close to him. How do I have daily time with God? Read your Bible. See, I don't really know how to read my Bible. I, I put on your sermon notes there some Bible reading plans that you can go to if you're brand new in, in this game. I found out last week from a couple of our small group leaders that they talked to people about reading their Bibles, and the response they got back was, Christian, we really, Christian, they didn't know how, like they don't know how to read their Bible and get something out of it. And I was cleaning out my home office this week and taking things over to the church offices we're setting up, and, and I found a discipleship packet that I taught in May of 2011 to like the 55 or 60 people who were coming to our church at the time, And it was a three-hour session on how to read your Bible and get something out of it. That's all that it was. And I saw I had Xeroxed a a copy of my journal, one of my pages from my journal to show people exactly what to write down so they could hear from God. I had Xeroxed a copy of a page in my Bible and what I actually wrote in my Bible so so that I could get something out of it and the plans that I used. And I thought, Lord, forgive me for taking so much time early in our church to teach people how to read the Bible and not really have done that lately. So I told our first service, and I'll, I'll tell you this, if, if you want to learn how to read the Bible and get something out of it every day, then on the back of your connection card when you turn it in today, just, read, uh, just, just write Bible, um, Bible study session. And I told our church, if 12 people between the 915 and 1045 services say, Christian, I'll give you two hours to teach me how to read the Bible so I can get something out of it every day, I will figure out how to rent out a room to have lunch one day after church, and we'll go, and I'll just teach you how to read the Bible so you can get something out of it every day. I don't want you not to read the Bible because you don't know how. But if we don't have 12, I'm going to assume that everyone knows what they're doing and we're okay there and we'll just, we'll pass by on that. But if you want to learn how to read your Bible, I would love to teach you. If you're not just reading your Bible, read a devotional. This is like the cliff notes of scripture. It's a verse a day to give you some kind of encouragement. It's basically you saying, hey Lord, I realize I need you. It's, It's making sure the light isn't out and then going on your way, but it's better than nothing. Or listen to Christian radio, or, or set your Pandora to a Christian radio or worship station, or set your playlist on your iPod to some kind of Christian station. Do something that says to God, hey, every day I want to make sure the light's not out, and when I see it's still burning, I'll be okay. Spend time with God every day. Secondly, you have to have some type of, as we look at the book of Acts, weekly spiritual instruction and discussion. In Acts 2.42, it says they met in the temple, to learn from the teachers, and then they went to houses and they talked about what they were learning. 
So you, you have to, if you want to keep the light burning, you've got to be in church on Sunday or you at least have to have access to the messages that are in church. Now, we have a group of four men at our church who probably carry the weight of more ministry than any other of our volunteers. John Engelman, Steve Foote, Brad Coleman, and Mike Curtis. They're the four guys who get here before everyone else, who leave after everyone else, and who set up the camera in the back that's on the back of the stands right there that some of you have never even seen. And they do that because we know that not everyone will be in church every Sunday. And we record the services so that when you're gone, you can stay plugged into what we're doing. Last year, more than 10,000 people downloaded our sermons to watch or listen to that were not a part of our church. 10,000. Probably the largest ministry our church has is the guys that set up that camera in the back of the room. We don't do that for people all over the world who don't go to our church. We do that for the people in our church whose kids have baseball games, who have to work on Sunday, who are out of town on vacation, so that you can stay plugged into the teaching that will keep your light burning spiritually. So no one in here will go every Sunday this year without missing church. But when you miss, keep the message close so you can learn and stay close to God. And then get in weekly small groups. That's where we go and just talk about Jesus and what's going on. A weekly small group allows you and a group of friends to just say, light's still burning? Yep, we're good. Okay, it's like looking at a gas gauge. Number three, once you start filling up spiritually, you have to volunteer to burn off the old fuel. One of my favorite rituals of spring is mowing my grass for the first time. I can't, I can't wait to get out and work in my yard. It's kind of my thing. And yesterday, um, I came home from a wedding. Brandon Golden, who usually leads worship, got married. Uh, and I pulled my mower out. I just wanted to start it. So I'm out in my driveway in a suit and a tie. And I just wanted to start it to let it run for five or ten minutes because it had been sitting all winter and I needed to run the old gas out of it so that I could change out the gas, change the oil, and just get it ready for the new year. And once I started it and it got running, it felt good in my hands. I, you know, I had to go change and just mow my yard then. Even though only half of it needed mowed, I just had to go and mow my yard. But it's important to burn off spiritual fuel as you're gaining spiritual fuel. Some of you, you've been filled up and trimmed so many times, but there's no more room for any new fuel in your life because you never volunteer to burn off the old stuff. You want to keep your engine burning fresh spiritually. Every now and then you've got to burn off the fuel that's in you. And then number four is pretty simple. Repeat steps one through three every day and every week. We had our new attender luncheon last week. Had 34 people from our church that have started visiting since January. And we told them, if you want to really engage in our church, here's what it looks like. Here's how you'll grow in our church. And it's been the same message since that May, Saturday morning, Sunday morning, sitting over at Harris Park Community Center teaching our people. You have to stay close to God. If you want to feel close to God, you have to put effort into staying close to God. Why? Why do we want to do that? Because we believe being close to God gives us spiritual direction. Right back to Psalm 119, 105, the psalmist said, your word is a lamp unto my feet and it's a light unto my path. What does that mean? A lamp unto my feet means that God's, being close to God is gonna give me help with my daily decisions for my spiritual next steps. It's the picture of a person walking with a lamp. They can't see 10 steps ahead, but they can see one step at a time. They can not only see where they need to go, they can see where they need to not go to have good footing. So keeping the light going spiritually shows us one step at a time where we're supposed to go. But then it's supposed to be a light into my path. You know, and I, I'm sure this is illegal, but my friends and I in, in southern Ohio used to run around the cornfields with our spotlight. We would spotlight deer at night when it wasn't deer season just to see what was going on. That spotlight would shine hundreds of yards off into the fields. 
God's word says it's also, it'll also be a light to your path. It'll, it'll give you long-term future decisions for your long-term spiritual journey. See, there is great value to keeping the light burning. Daily decisions, long-term decisions. Stay close to God, God will stay close to you. You see, our mission statement as a church, we say it every Sunday, is to see people who are far from God become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. We want to see people who are here spiritually move to their next step spiritually. And regardless of where you are spiritually, if your lamp is not burning at a 10 today, hopefully you've learned why that is. My kids, when, um, when we go on vacation, they, they, they kind of watch all kinds of random shows that we don't watch at home. And a couple of vacations ago, they got hooked on uh, Man vs. Wild and Survivor Man um, and Bear Grylls, like all those guys that get dropped in the middle of nowhere and they have to learn how to survive. Great shows, fun shows to watch. If you've not been a Boy Scout, you feel like very inadequate when you watch these things and you don't know how to do anything. But all these guys who are, who are teaching survival stuff, the most important thing to do is to immediately get a fire started. And the most important thing after that is to make sure it doesn't go out. What if I told you spiritual survival was the exact same way? That the most important thing in your spiritual survival is to make sure that your spiritual light is burning and that the next most important thing in your spiritual survival is to make sure that your spiritual light doesn't go out. The most important thing is to make sure your spiritual light is burning and then the next most important thing is to make sure your spiritual light doesn't go out. You see, we're trying to help people get ahead of eternity by living with God and for God now. In Revelation 21.3, the apostle John said, I heard a loud voice from the throne of heaven speaking of the end times, saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. You see, the Bible started with the Garden of Eden with God and man together and the Bible ends in eternity with God and man together but Jesus in Matthew 27, 15 or 51 says now, now, right now God and man can be together and guess what? When God and man are together the spiritual light stays lit you know in Jerusalem when we went there there's a um, right next to the Temple Mount where Solomon's Temple used to be in downtown Old City, Jerusalem um, now on the Temple Mount is the Dome of the Rock. It's the third holiest Muslim site in, in the world. But the Jews believe that one day um, God's temple is going to be there again and they're going to rebuild God's temple. So they've got this exact replica of a menorah for Solomon's temple overlaid in pure gold that's encased kind of right up the hill from where the Temple Mount is to remind the Jewish people that one day this land's going to be ours. One day, the temple's going to be there. And one day, the light is going to return to the world through Israel. And as cool as that was, I took that with my cell phone when I was there. They've actually got it wrong theologically. Because in Revelation 21, 23, the apostle John said of the new world, the city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. You see, we can go back into the tabernacle and we can every day pour some oil and trim the wick or we can stay close to Jesus because the lamb is the lamp. And if you stay close to Jesus, you'll stay on fire spiritually. And if you get distant from Jesus, you'll be on, then off, then on, then off, then on, then off. 
But if you will do your part, I promise you, God will do his. So here's the light on spiritually. Will you commit to turning it on and keeping it on? Let's pray together.